0: Morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden
1: rule American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone.
0: Ring, ring, go. Hello, everyone. My name is Leonie Hampson. Welcome to our show. Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City to state level and nationally. Our show's also available for download as a podcast. This week, I have as my guest Council Member Danny Drum, who is the powerful chair of the Council Finance Committee and a former teacher. He will talk about his experiences as a teacher in Queens, how he came out to his class long before that was an easy thing to do, and he'll also give us some insight about the budget negotiations between the council and the mayor for next year, and if we may really get smaller classes as the council has proposed. But first, a news update, about 51,000 more New York City students began returning Returning to the city's public school buildings on Monday after the DOE offered families one more chance to sign up for in-person learning during this school year. Still more than 60% are learning entirely remotely. Out of about 960,000 total uh, public school students, more than 580,000 are still staying home. And many of those who are attending school in person are still learning on computers with their teachers either in another room or at home. The mayor released his proposed budget for next year this week. He proposed $500 million, among other things, for an amorphous pot of money for, quote, intensive academic recovery for every student that will include tutoring and something called universal academic assessments. Though he hasn't said what these assessments will be and who will be charged with tutoring our kids. No money for more social workers or counselors, which was in the city council budget, in his budget, Though the day after he released it, he agreed to fund an additional 500 more social workers. The budget also includes 155 million for unspecified digital tools that support technology literacy. No mention of what is one of the city council's top priorities, 250 million for class size reduction, which many of us believe is more necessary than ever to help kids catch up and recover from the losses they suffered from the pandemic and a year and a half of remote learning. I just want to mention that Regent Kathy Cashin, who's the Regent um, from Brooklyn, um, has a great op-ed in the Daily News today about how schools were transformed in her district um, by smaller classes and how she believes that all kids in New York City deserve that chance. I'll put the link to the op-ed in the resources section of the WBAI um, archive and also on our podcast. Another piece of good news is that State Senator Robert Jackson, the original plaintiff in the Campaign for Fiscal Equity lawsuit, just submitted a bill to require that DOE update and renew its obligation to develop and implement a five-year class size reduction plan with accountability and transparency provisions to ensure that they do. Co-sponsors so far Senators Brad Hoylman, Julia Salazar, and Brian Benjamin, and Assembly Member Joanne Simon has submitted the same bill in the Assembly. I'll put the link to those bills in resources as well. But now I'd like to turn to my special guest, Council Member Danny Drum, a former teacher in Queens and head of the very powerful Finance Committee. Danny, it's so great that you that you're here. Can you turn on your mic?
1: Thanks so much, Laney. It's great to be here with you, and of course, it's great to be able to talk about my passion, which is education. That's what got me involved in politics in the first place. So thank you for having me.
0: A few years ago, Class Size Matters, my organization, gave you our Skinny Award for giving us the real skinny in New York City schools. And you have truly been a champion for teachers, for students, for parents, and for anyone who cares about improving the quality of New York City schools. Um, First, can you tell us a little bit about your experience teaching at an elementary school in Queens and why you think Class Size is so important?
1: Sure. Well, first, let me just say thank you for giving me that skinny award. Um, I really admire you and the work that you do, and I really admire Class Size Matters, and I really think you know what uh, matters most, um, and you have an excellent reputation in the ex- in the education community, so thank you for that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was a New York City public school teacher for 25 years before I got elected to the city council. I taught at PS199Q in Sunnyside. And that's one of the most overcrowded districts in the city. Even to this day, it remains uh, one of the most overcrowded. Um, and I uh, remember uh, sitting in the staff room uh, when the um, uh, the custodian came up, opened uh, one of the closet doors, took out the uh, pitchfork, the shovel, the brooms, the uh, paint cans, etc., cetera, and uh, told me that they was going to turn that into the speech classroom. Now, that was a closet. You know, there was no windows. <laughs> Literally, it was a maintenance closet. And they put a little table in there. Uh, but that's how overcrowded my school was. They turned the locker rooms into classrooms. Teachers were using the hallways. And this was in spite of the fact that we had four portables out in the yard. We were still overcrowded and we had two annexes, uh, one in the Catholic school, St. Raphael's and the other, actually, the second one is also in a Catholic school, uh, St. Teresa's in Sunnyside. So um, my school was extremely overcrowded. There were years where I had 38 students in my class. And I remember one year, the principal um, making a deal with us because we had the 38 and you needed at 17 to open a new class. uh, And he said, look, we don't have the 17 extra. Um, but what I'll do is I'll give you an extra prep and we can have somebody cover math for you. So, um, you know, that was my whole career. It just never changed from day one. We had 34 to 38 kids in our classes the whole 25 years.
0: And that violates the union contract, which caps class sizes at 32. and, And that cap of 32 in the contract is actually more than 50 years old as well. So you know that um, even with the excessive class sizes in the union contract, a lot of schools were were not complying with those caps. Um, So you basically never had an opportunity to to, um, have a smaller class, but you- Well, I actually did in summer school. And I always wondered why they knew that
1: smaller class sizes worked well in summer school in terms of providing remediation (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, versus the regular school year. You know, they didn't argue that that's what worked and got those kids through the summer, you know, and and, and able to move on to the next grade. So the Department of Education knows what works, but they choose not to fund the thing that they know works the best, which is class size reduction.
0: So you've also been a real pioneer for gay rights, co-founded the Queen's Lesbian and Gay Pride Committee in 1990, Can you talk a little about your evolution as a gay activist and what led you to come out to your school quite early in a very conservative district when it was still very risky to do? Sure. You know,
1: I um, actually came out to my mom in 1973 when homosexuality was still on the list of mental disorders. And my mom accepted me, which I think is what made a huge difference in my life and, 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 and enabled me to become as successful as I think I am. Uh, in terms of, uh, having been, you know, having had a great career as a teacher and now as a city council member. Um, uh, but she, many parents reject their children. Um, but anyway, I, I got into the Department of Education. I thought I was out, you know, amongst my friends and family. Um, but in 1992, the uh, chairperson of the local school board, Mary Cummins, uh, district 24, uh, decided that they were going to oppose basically everything. They were opposed to multicultural education. They were opposed to bilingual education. And now when the Children of the Rainbow curriculum came around, which was a curriculum that was designed to teach tolerance of all of New York's diverse communities because there had been killings of African-American men in Bensonhurst and in um, Howard Beach in Brooklyn and in in Southern Queens, um, my school board came out in opposition to the Rainbow curriculum. There were three pages in the Rainbow curriculum that dealt with same-sex families, which were optional, Uh, but if a teacher should find that they have a child who comes from a same-sex family, here was some, um, you know, um, resources and materials that they could use to make that child feel comfortable in their classroom. But what happened was that, you know, when my school board voiced opposition, I knew I was gay, I knew what they were doing. Uh, And one day at lunch, I went down, after lunch, I went to pick up my class from the schoolyard, and there was a girl who was crying, and she was like, oh, oh, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, and I'm like, what's going on? And she would not tell me. So I brought the class upstairs, and I asked her to come out into the hallway with me, and I asked her, honey, what's going on? And it took her a while, but finally she brought it out. They're teasing me because my mother is a lesbian. And I said, oh, my gosh. Now, here I was handed this, knowing I was a gay teacher, knowing what was going on with the school board, but really felt there was very little I could do for this student. You know, I I I, I was fearful that if I did anything, um, the school board would go after me. So that kind of sat with me until the following September, when my school board again began the campaign against the Children of the Rainbow curriculum. And I decided I was going to go to a meeting in the LGBT Center in Manhattan, uh, about having, you know, how we can defend the rainbow curriculum. So I was there. I raised my hand and I said, I'm a teacher from district 24. And immediately the media focused in on me. I remember Ron Madsen from the Lesbian and Gay Teachers Association saying to me, are you tenured? You know, <laughs> because that's how dangerous it was. And I was tenured. I don't know that I would have really done it if I wasn't tenured. Uh, and that speaks to why tenure, I think is also so important to protect teachers like me from um, being ousted from the Department of Education. Um, uh, but anyway, it made front page news. I was all over the place. Uh, I started the Queen's Pride Parade as a result of that. I got a lot of fame and, from, from having come out that way. Uh, and then began a long battle within District 24 for a more inclusive curriculum. And not just for LGBT folks, but for everybody. Because as I mentioned, they were opposed to multicultural education. They took books about Martin Luther King off the bookshelf in uh, some of the schools. I had some school board members that came into my classroom trying to observe me and intimidate me. Uh, But to make a long story short, um, I got the final revenge, quote unquote, when I got elected to the city council uh, and I became chair of the education committee and was able to infuse uh, dollars into the Department of Education to create an LGBTQ liaison within the department the first one was a man named Jared Fox, and now we have Eric Vaughn, uh, and he is constantly getting calls because I think today more and more kids are coming out at a younger age or questioning their sexuality, but they're not shy about it. They're open about it, and um, teachers don't know how to deal with it. Some guidance counselors don't know how to deal with it. Oftentimes, parents don't know how to deal with it. Um, so we you know, we really need that uh, LGBT liaison in the schools, uh, and so Anyway, we've seen some great changes in the school system, uh, because of um, some money that was able to get in there in terms of curriculum. Uh, we brought in um, LGBT writers, we brought in uh, PFLAG, parents, families and friends of lesbians and gays. Um, and uh, LGBT history uh, is included in some schools, but it's not, it's not um, citywide and it's not system wide. So more work remains to be done.
0: So there is you. You were featured in an article in the New York Times back then when you first came out at that meeting. And um, here's a quote from what you said at the time: um, "Gay people throughout the city are no longer living in the closet," said Mr. Drum, a fourth grade teacher at PS 199 in Sunnyside. They are developing relationships, and they are open about it. We as educators must face that need in the schools. Mr. Drama Teacher for 15 years, the last eight in the city school, said some children in a school have gay or lesbian parents and that classmates, even in an early age, show bias. And here I was as a gay teacher, and I felt that because my hands were tied, I wasn't able to do as much as I really wanted to do for that child. And they actually tried to remove you from the school. Is that right? You, you had a, There was a disciplinary hearing in 19. 19- 1993 because you told your, the class that you were gay, and luckily the uh, Board of Education lawyer opened an investigation but found you uh, not guilty. Um, that must have been extremely stressful.
1: It was extremely stressful, and um, that was done under um, the Mary Cummins um, tenure, and then I had Frank borzelli Airy who I call the equal opportunity hater because he was against everybody. Uh, he called himself a white uh, racialist, not racist, racialist, which meant that he believed in the separation of the races. Imagine these people sitting on school boards, instructing children, mostly children of color. Um, you know, so it was outrageous. But I couldn't live with myself and not be who I am. And I had the support of my mom, as I always said. You know, and that's all that mattered to me is that my mother supported me, and the hell with the rest. And so I just continually fought them. And I believe, you know, I, I really think we've prevailed and, and things are quite different today. Although, I, as I said before, much work remains. But yeah, I mean, they came into my classroom. They wrote newspaper articles against me. They were very politically connected, these school board members. Um, and, um, you know, it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time. Was the principal supportive or, or neutral or against <laughs> you or what? Well, the principal was supportive in the sense that I brought a lot of programs to the school that he loved. And as a matter of fact, about two or three years ago, I got an award from the principal's association, not from CSA, but from another principal's association. And he said to me that I was the best teacher that he ever had, which was the highest compliment that I could have received. But you know, those were different times too. And I think what he feared was the publicity that would hurt his school or bring a negative view. Um, so he was cautious. Um, at one time, um, there was an article in the New Yorker magazine where um, I quoted the principal saying, the school board would cut my balls off if I continued to do this, you know, and um, I think what he was just trying to do was trying to protect me, but, you know, it was, it was difficult all around in a sense, you know, um, but yeah, every principal was was cautious, but the discrimination didn't come from the principal, the discrimination did not come from the parents, in fact, and I, I love to tell this part of the story. The day that my story hit the cover of Newsday, um, the parents came to the school and stood in the lobby and told the media who was outside that nothing is going to be done to hurt this teacher, that we love Mr. Drum. So it was really the parents who stood up for me and, and made their views clear. This is 1992. Just think, you know, how it was almost 19 years, uh, uh, 29 years ago. That this happened. So um, I always credit the parents with saving my job.
0: Well, that's such a great story. Um, then, after working as a classroom teacher for 25 years, you decided to run for city council. How did you make that decision?
1: Well, it was a long road, uh, you know, moving forward. When I did come out uh, in support of the rainbow curriculum, I, I immediately recognized the connection between politics and education. And I think that sometimes folks don't necessarily make those connections, but everything that's done in education is based on politics. Who's in office? Who makes the decisions? Who appoints who to the, um, the, the board of regents, et cetera, so forth and so on. But coming out in the way that I did made it really clear to me the connections. I mean, I knew basically, but now I had a, a lived experience, so to speak, in terms of that connection. So I got more politically involved. I joined some of the Democratic clubs in the area. I started my own Democratic club because we didn't have one, the Queen's Lesbian and Gay, uh, the Lesbian Gay Democratic Club of Queens um, in 1994, because I knew that we needed a vehicle by which to endorse pro-LGBT candidates. And uh, that was really important. So um, I moved down the road, became more politically involved, became a district leader, uh, which is a party position. Uh, And then once I became a district leader, I knew that I was probably gonna run for city council. And in 2009, I took on an incumbent. Uh, And in those days, taking on an incumbent uh, was very difficult, but I beat her by 10 percentage points. So I was proud of that as well. And I've been in the council uh, since then for the last um, 11 and a half years, almost 12 years now.
0: It's still very difficult to beat an incumbent. I mean, most people don't seriously try. So that really is uh, amazing. Now, after a few years, you became the head of the Education Committee, and as chair, um, I witnessed how you relentlessly advocated for students on issues such as school bullying, restorative justice, and, of course, class size. What was the experience like um, being the chair of the Education Committee?
1: Well, it was a wonderful experience for me personally because I never thought that I would achieve that. And having oversight over the Department of Education Whereas the Department of Education used to have oversight over me was a really rewarding experience, you know, mm-hmm. and I knew that I could affect some policy changes. So yes, my focus was on a number of issues was the bullying issue, uh, but also infusing LGBT curriculum. I mm-hmm. think that that's important outside of bullying. So people should know about people like Bayard Rustin or Billie Jean King and, and, and not whitewash their stories, you know uh I, I i also am a deep believer in restorative practices we were able to initially get two million dollars through a council initiative into the department of education to um implement restorative practices i mean my experience as a teacher i was known as somebody who had you know any any child who was having issues give them to danny but what i tried <laughs> to do was was like work with those kids and listen to those kids yes um you know it was difficult to implement restorative practices when I was like one of the very few teachers who was implementing it or trying to do it in the classroom. Um, because, you know, oftentimes i go down after lunch and the, the kids who were the quote unquote problem kids, you know, were um, having issues with the, the school aides who were not educated on restorative practices, you know. But well, can you explain
0: um, for our listeners what restorative practices are all about? Sure. So,
1: I mean, restorative practices, and I think one of the ones that works the best, there are several examples, is about Looking at and understanding kids' lived experiences and the experiences that they bring into school with them. And so, um, you know, talking to them about what issues they may have. Uh, The one that I think works best is the one where you involve circles and you spend, uh, you know, time in the morning sitting with your students and you discuss what the things are that are going on. And then the little ones, it might be as much as saying, you know, pick the, the face, the smiley face if you're happy, or pick the sad face if you're sad. And then and then the teacher would then say, well, why are you feeling so sad today? And what's bothering you? But you can't really teach kids unless they feel that you are with them. You know, kids can root out phonies immediately. If you're only there and you're going to give instruction, you know, throw out words and, you know, uh, facilitate uh, whatever it is that you're trying to do, they're not going to take to it unless they really know that you're there for them. So restorative practices means taking those lived experiences and um, listening to them and incorporating them into your classroom and it takes a little time uh, and it takes some time away from the teaching quote unquote, but you can't teach unless you implement restorative practices.
0: So in 2013, you were reelected to the council with 99.6% of the vote. (laughs) And a few years later, you became chair of the finance committee, one of the most powerful men in city government. How did that happen? Did you lobby for the job? What goes on in terms of getting appointed to these? The speaker makes the decisions, right?
1: Right. Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, You know, I did not want to leave my education post Um, But I did have a very close and good relationship with Speaker Corey Johnson. Um, And so um, a lot of people lobby for uh, the finance committee chairperson's job. I did not lobby. And in fact, I turned it down when the speaker asked me to take it on. And I said, you know, I want to be education chair. I think that's where I can have the most impact. And he convinced me and he asked me to serve. So in the idea of service, I took on the position of finance chair and he explained, you know, you can have an even greater influence. You can make decisions about infusing money into the Department of Education in areas where you feel it's needed the most. You know, and I have seen that that's you know, pretty true. And um, and so I am very grateful to the speaker for pushing me on that. And I have really enjoyed my tenure as the finance chair as well. So it is it is a very powerful position in that sense.
0: It's also very time consuming because you're supposed to attend all the different budget hearings for every single agency. Is that right? I mean, what is your day, especially during budget season? What is your schedule like? I mean, how many how many hours a day are you doing hearings?
1: Well, I'm doing hearings probably, um, you know, eight to 10 hours sometimes, depending on, uh, you know, what type of a hearing it is. Um, and then after I do a hearing, I have to get pre- prepped or briefed for the next day's hearings because it's every single day uh, right through the budget season. So from the end of April right through uh, the time that we get an agreement, you know, uh, after we do the hearings, we have the actual negotiations, the meeting of the BNP, the budget negotiating team, which is almost on a daily basis as well. And sometimes those negotiations are quite lengthy and long and, and late at night or um in the past, we've, we've run until two in the morning in, in some, uh, on some occasions, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it is a very busy time and a very tense time, um, you know, uh, for um, us, because those neg- the negotiations can be tough, especially when you have, you know, like last year, a, a very limited amount of money. I'm hoping that this year, um, because there is this infusion of federal money, that we'll be able to um, provide a better budget.
0: Federal and, it's and state money. Finally, yes. we get the funda- full foundation aid. Um, everything is happening remotely, of course, this year. Um, and so the hearings are remote. I assume that the negotiation meetings are remote. Is that easier or harder for you at this point?
1: It's really interesting. In one sense, it's easier because they don't actually have to travel into City Hall. But in another sense, it is tiring because you're on Zoom Conferences all day long, and actually, I feel like Zoom does require you to focus in and to concentrate more. I read an article, I think it was in the Times, saying that you know that focused concentration uh, and even your facial responses to things that people are saying, um, you know, is is it, it, a very different experience than when you're meeting in person. You can get subtleties uh, when you're meeting in person that you don't necessarily get when you're talking on Zoom conferences. So um, it is, it's it, it's very tiring, actually.
0: Um, Now, speaking of negotiations, um, the council is in the midst of negotiating a budget next year with the mayor. Um, I think I mentioned earlier the council has proposed to put two hundred fifty million dollars for class size reduction. Um, While the mayor has not put that in his budget, instead, he wants to spend a lot of money on alternative uses, including five hundred million dollars for a program of tutoring and more testing. Um, do you have any reaction to that, um, that proposal? And you know, as opposed to class size reduction, how you would weigh those priorities?
1: So sure, I'm an opt out person. I don't believe in testing at all. I've done a number of press conferences ever since I was education chair and a supporter of it even before that. Um, I don't believe in testing. As a matter of fact, when I went to City College, And I had uh, the great professor, Dr. Lillian Weber. Uh, She told us, don't look at the record cards. Don't look at the test, the formal test scores. She said, put them away. And after Christmas, (laughs) look at those record cards and those tests. Make your own opinions uh, and and gather your own information about each and every student. Don't become prejudiced by those test scores. I just don't really believe they're valid in the first place, you know? Um, So uh, testing is a whole other, um, you know, um, discussion, really. But I was surprised to see the 500 million in there. I don't know exactly what it means. Uh, And actually, I didn't get an opportunity to question the mayor on that. But I did question the mayor on the 250 million for class size reduction. And um, he did say that he uh, was willing to work with me on it. He did say that he didn't know what number um, it would be. But he also did say that he wanted to look at um, what the fair student funding was able to accomplish because i believe that they put in uh, over a hundred million if i'm not mistaken into fair student funding over 600 million uh, 600 million i'm sorry and fair student funding um and what it in- of impact that would have so i'm going to take the mayor at his word and i'm going to follow up with the mayor i know that council member helen rosenthal Is on board with me. And I also believe that Chair Traeger, the chair of the education committee, is on board. Uh, There were some good things that he included. You know, there are going to be more community schools, there are going to be more social workers, guidance counselors. These are things that we've also been pushing for years, you know. um, uh, And also, he did not increase the number of uh, school safety agents. uh, And I think that is really important. I've been an opponent of increasing school safety agents in the schools. I think the money is better spent on supportive services, on restorative practices. Um, so those things in the budget were good, but there's the one piece which we've not tried really. I mean, some, 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 sometimes it's been, you know, they've done some work on it. But the one thing that we all know that works is class size reduction. You know, when I had smaller classes, that's what worked. That's when I was able to individualize my instruction. That's when I was able to give students that, you know, that individualized attention, um, and 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 we need that desperately. Um, so, and and I, I think any teacher that you talk to would agree. Class size reduction is what matters the most. So, um, I, let's. I'd say we've tried the rest now. Let's try the best.
0: <laughs> absolutely. I don't think there really is much debate about that in the literature. The re- the research shows it. It's very popular. It's a top priority of parents, a top priority of teachers. Every mayor has promised to reduce class sizes when he first runs for office, and then he forgets about it once he gets there. One of the objections um, that the, one of the few reasonable objections that I've heard is the fact that schools are very overcrowded. Many schools are overcrowded and we will have to find the space to do it. However, um, there are something like 17 parochial schools that are closing this year. Um, The DOE could acquire those spaces very easily. Um, Another proposal that has been made that makes a lot of sense to me is moving some of the pre-K classes out of elementary schools into the city run pre-K centers and or um, community-based organizations. Um, one of the unfortunate things that happened with the expansion of pre-K is that the DOE drew a lot of kids out of the community-based pre-Ks that had been serving um, you know, kids for a long time and put them into elementary schools where they further over, for, uh, further overcrowded those schools. I wonder what you think about those ideas. Yeah,
1: and I would agree with Eleni on all of that. I think also now the mayor in this budget is talking about 3K and uh, it's an admirable goal to have pre-K education. I really deeply believe in, in, um, you know, pre-K education. I, I think if we can get to the kids early, but not at the expense of overcrowding other classrooms, because I think that what you could have happen is that all of the gains that you make in the uh, pre-K and kindergarten would then be lost moving forward if, in fact, you have large class sizes. So I think it has to be approached at the same time. And I think this is the suggestions that you're making about looking at Catholic schools, about looking at CBOs for, um, you know, for space for the uh, 3K or the UPK uh, are ideas that we really need to look at. I, when I was education chair, I pressed for and got about $780 billion, uh, $780 million, excuse me, additional into the, um, the school construction authority budget um, specifically to build new schools um, and especially in district 24 and district 30 which at that time were the most overcrowded now district 20 as well as extremely overcrowded um, but we need to really focus on new school construction and class size reduction um, at the same time that we're looking at um, increasing um, 3k and upk
0: Yeah, that's why I think it's really important this bill in the state Senate that would actually require New York City to renew its obligations to provide a five year plan and that next year could be the first year of that plan. It's really important to start it, I think, in the last year of this mayoralty to give something for whoever is the next mayor to build upon, because we don't know who the next mayor is going to be. It's really important to put that flag down now and say this is important, this is what we have to do, because it would be m- much more difficult for the next mayor to then take it away and say, we're not gonna reduce class sizes at all. Um, you mentioned the, the, the issue about pre-K and gains dissipating. Actually, there is a very uh, interesting large-scale experimental study that was done in North Carolina that actually showed exactly what you said, which was that kids who were randomly assigned to pre-K did make gains, but those gains did dissipate in places where they faced, um, you know, below par learning conditions in kindergarten and beyond. And and one of the authors of that study specifically cited class size as something that's important to to provide so as to make sure that the gains from pre-K are built upon. Um, Unfortunately, the, the mayor has made this statement, you know, that if you do everything right, um, before age, you know, five, if you, if you provide enough 3K and pre-K, nothing else really matters. And I think that that shows like a profound misunderstanding of, of what education is all about. So I'm really, really happy about, um, you know, your insistence and the city council's priority to push for this in the final budget. And, and I hope that that will happen. Um, you no, know,
1: Lenny, too, if I could just say, I think that um, uh, early childhood education doesn't stop at K. It right. goes right through first, second, and even third grade, and right. oftentimes even into fourth grade. I was a fourth grade teacher for most of those 25 years that I was in the public school system. They're still kids, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, they still need that individualized attention. And even moving forward, I mean, look, you know, high school students need, need, need that type of help as well. So, but um, I couldn't agree more, and I, and I think that that study is absolutely correct from my experiences.
0: So is it okay if we take some questions? Hopefully some listeners might call in. Callers, if you have comments or questions for Council Member Drum, please call us at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. Now you mentioned the issue of school safety agents, which is a very controversial issue and people have many different opposing points of view on it. Um, Basically, these are the people who are hired by the police and trained by the police to try to keep safety in our schools. But many students, many um, advocates believe that they, instead of of approaching issues in in the way that you mentioned with restorative justice, with psychological, emotional support to kids to really find out what the root causes of, of disciplinary issues are, that that introduces a sort of Um, police police in our schools too early and often too much. They act like police rather than as people providing services um, and support to kids. Um, In the recent hearings at the city council, someone from DOE actually mentioned that this that the mayor wanted to add to the number of school safety agents, um, which he apparently had promised not to do. But beyond that, and now he hasn't added, as you mentioned, in the budget, but beyond that, there's really the question as whether some of those school safety agents should be moved over to the Department of Education's budget and should be trained by DOE um, in a different methodology, in a different practice, and I think the mayor promised last year that that would happen as well. Have we seen any progress in that area? And what what's in the budget in terms of of, of that of that that um, the school safety agents?
1: Sure. So with the agreement last year around the whole issue of policing, uh, which by the way uh, the policing in the schools started under Giuliani, um, and uh, when they were transferred into. Um, uh, into the police department. We used to have a, a, an elderly woman sitting at the front door when I first started teaching, and she had a cane. And boy, believe me, nobody walked past that lady. <laughs> we don't need police in the schools. So that's my opinion. Um, and uh, and then we had the whole question of who do the um, school safety agents report to? There were many incidents along uh, the way where uh, school safety agents were not Following the instructions of principals, arresting kids against the will of the principal, uh, and and oftentimes for things that kids normally go through, you know, I mean, we've heard of cases where police have put handcuffs on on kindergarten students. You know, this is outrageous. So, you know, last year those um, school safety agents—it's it's a funny thing—the the, 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 the funding for um, the school safety agents goes to the Department of Ed and then goes to the police department to. To pay for for them, right. Now we have an agreement, we had an agreement last budget season for it to come back into the Department of Education, but that has not happened yet. So when I've questioned the administration on that, what they said to me that it was a multi-year agreement and that it will soon be happening. So I think the question moving forward in these budget negotiations should be, when do you anticipate in fiscal year 22 that that is going to happen? Now, in regard to the issue of the training that the school safety agents um, receive, there have been some efforts, particularly in the Bronx that I'm aware of, and with the School Safety Act and the reporting uh, that has gone on with that, um, we know that not all school safety agents are getting the same level of training in restorative practices. But every school safety agent should be out of uniform and should be trained in uh, restorative practices. Um, there, there was a one horrible incident that I want to recall is on the Park Slope campus when I was the head of uh, the education committee where a kid wore glasses and he had a pin in the glasses because the glasses were broken. Now imagine, you know, kids are very much in tune to fashion and stuff like that and don't want to show up in school with a pin stuck in their glasses because they're too poor to be able to afford a new pair of glasses, whatever. But here was this kid who did go to school and he walked through the metal detector and because of that, pin being in there, it went off. They tried to take uh, you know, um, the glasses away from him. He objected. Uh, An a, a, a altercation occurred. They threw him to the ground and then they arrested him um, simply for trying to go to school. Uh, I've heard of instances where school safety agents have told um, LGBT students to remove those rubber um, band um, bracelets that they have, a rainbow rubber band bracelet, and then actually call the kid the F word, the faggot word. Um, So, you know, um, this has to stop. That is not how we treat students. These are young people. Uh, They make mistakes sometimes, and we need to ensure their safety in the school without police or the police looking presence in the school.
0: Absolutely. One thing that distinguishes you from almost every other New York City elected official is, I think, your political independence and courage. And one sign of that was that there is this group called Yafed, which advocates for Jewish Orthodox boys to receive an adequate education, though currently they only get about 90 minutes a day of lessons in English, science and math. And after age 13, none at all. The ultra-Orthodox religious leaders in New York City have a huge political power because their community generally votes in a block and they, uh, their leaders oppose any efforts to regulate their schools. We've had Neftuli Moser, the head of Yafet, on this show twice. Um, I've been to their press conferences at City Hall and as far as I've seen you are generally the only city elected leader to show up and regularly speak out in support of these children and their right to a quality education. Do you wanna talk a little bit about that issue?
1: Sure, I mean, we cannot allow the education neglect of any student to occur in New York City. I went to Catholic schools, conservative Catholic schools. I was taught Catholic theology and religion, uh, but I still got You know, the basics in education, reading, writing, math in those days, we used to call it, uh, and I was able to go to college. The students that Naftuli is talking about, he himself was one of them, um, do not leave school, do not leave the yeshivas with an adequate education uh, or an education equivalent to what students might get in the public school system. Many can't even speak English when they leave uh, the yeshiva system. Uh, And it's interesting. It's the boys rather than the girls, because in uh, Orthodox Jewish um, beliefs, um, the boys should be studying the Torah and and the girls will go out and support the family. So, um, you know, I believe what you're doing is continuing the cycle of poverty within many of the Orthodox communities. Now, there are those who will argue against me in that, but I don't think that there should be any argument about providing students with the basics, learning to read and speak English, learning math, learning history. Uh, There are examples of people who came out um, and and have no idea of any of the social studies uh, topics of the current events that have happened in the world today because all they do is go to the yeshiva where it's not discussed. That is educational neglect. The state has a responsibility. The city has a responsibility. I press the city on that. I work with Naftuli. Um, we held a hearing, uh, we didn't hold a hearing, but we, I, I constantly brought it up, um, in, in, in um, in, in my hearings. Uh, interestingly, Chaim Deutsch, uh, was just thrown out of the council. He was one of the main opponents of my work on this issue, uh, within the council. Um, so. He was
0: thrown out for, for, for tax avoidance. So he broke yes. the law on taxes, just to make it clear. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I applaud Naftuli and, um. Uh, Deborah Glick did come to a um, a press conference at one time, but, and and listen, all of the Jewish leaders that I've spoken with have said, Danny, continue to speak out on this, um, because what you're saying is basically the truth. So I go with that. They're not willing to say it publicly, but they are willing to say it to me privately.
0: Another very controversial issue, which you've taken a strong stand on, is charter schools. Um, we have seen an explosion in the number of charter schools um, since uh, Mayor Bloomberg was elected. He encouraged their growth. Joel Klein, who is our chancellor, actually um, told Jeffrey Canada when he wanted to start um, some new schools that he shouldn't start a public school. He should sh- uh, start charter school. Um, They gave them space within our public school buildings, causing in some cases worse overcrowding and a loss of availability of lunchrooms, gyms, libraries, science rooms, et cetera, for the public school students. We recently put out a, a report which was sort of like the second version of an earlier report showing that hundreds of public schools do not get the legally required matching funds for facility upgrades that are le- that are required by law when charter schools actually get air conditioners or repaint or, or resurface um, their floors. And also we're paying an increased amount of money every year for their rent because um, the state legislature a few years back um, said that either we have to put, give them space in our public schools or we have to pay for their private rent. And we're spending millions of dollars for private rent, including in some cases for charter schools, whose charter management organization or other affiliated organization owns the building. And so we are the only district in the entire state and in the entire country with this financial obligation. And it really worries me a lot, not just because it seems very inequitable, but because if we are ever to reduce class sizes, we need all that space. And we need um, as much facilities money as possible to expand the space um, for public school students. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I mean, Eva Moskowitz, um, you know, is um, the owner of a building that she herself pays her rent to herself for. That, on top of her outrageous salary and her husband's um, uh, salary as the legal advisor to Success Networks, pays them close to, if not more than, at this point, a million dollars a year. Now, compared to a public school principal who's probably making about 125 dollars to $150,000 a year, um, come on. I mean, this is insanity. And, and we're paying for it. The taxpayer is paying for it. And that's money that is being drawn from the public school system, where otherwise we would have those funds infused into our local schools. You know, um, some of the parents in my district, and it annoys me, Um, take their kids and put their kids in charter schools, you know, and then they call themselves progressives. It's unacceptable. Uh, Charter schools are harming our public school students. And if we are truly believers of the public school system, we should be putting our kids into the public school system. Uh, And, um, and so I am very much opposed to any expansion of charter schools. I had a resolution that passed the city council, uh, against any expansion of, of when I was chair of the education committee, we passed it against any expansion of charter schools. And I continue to believe that I have opposed political candidates that some quote unquote progressives have support who are teachers and supporters of charter schools. Uh, and I just don't see how you can defend that. Um, and, and, and some of the worst and, and then even some of the discipline policies of some of these charter schools. I pointed out then Coney Island prep, for example, they have or had a policy, I don't know if it's changed, but they had a policy where kids earned pride dollars if they did good things and also just basing you know things on behavioral mod, um, you know with giving kids pride dollars and money and that whole thing um, you know it's just terrible. But anyway, uh, and if a, a kid misbehaved, they took pride dollars away. So um, you know if you ran out of pride dollars, then you had to wear an orange t-shirt and you know, get the connection, orange t-shirt. Um, and 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 then you would sit in the classroom wearing this orange t-shirt and other kids in the class were not allowed to talk to you. If the other kids in the class talked to you while you were wearing the orange t-shirt, they themselves then would have to wear an orange t-shirt. And they supported it. These charter advocates supported that policy at my hearing. Even some of the community charter schools supported that policy. That is outrageous. And 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 those discipline policies, those harsh discipline policies are anathema to me in, in, in everything I believe in, in terms of restorative practices. So um, we have got to watch that situation very, very carefully. And as long as I'm around, I will not be supporting charter schools or any expansion of them.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Eva Moskowitz. She runs the success chain of charter schools, which I think is the largest chain in New York City. Um, She, um, Success Academy Charter Management Organization, owns the space in Hudson Yards, which is the most expensive real estate development in the entire country. Um, And we're paying her... Chain over $3.4 million a year to rent the space that the charter management organization owns. We paid more than $11.6 million uh, last year um, to charter schools to rent buildings that their charter management organization or affiliated foundation owns, which I really think is egregious. Speaking of charters, I, I wonder if you noticed yesterday's announcement that the guy who founded Democracy Prep Charter Schools, which is one of the other large chains in the city that also has branches uh, throughout the country, Seth Andrew, who left um, running Democracy Prep to become a top advisor for um, Secretary Arnie Duncan when he was education secretary and then later left to run another large organization, was indicted for stealing money from the charter schools, putting them in his bank account, and getting a lower mortgage rate for his home in Manhattan as a result. Did you see that story?
1: No, I did not see that story. But, you know, look, these stories of, you know, we hear these all around the country. You know, it's, 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 it's actually, unfortunately, not something new. But, uh, you know, when you scratch the surface you find out more and more about how corrupt these uh, charter schools are so and, and and then they have the nerve to call themselves public schools uh, which they aren't really public schools or they say they're a public school teacher which they aren't really but it, it, it's, it's it's a rotten shame if every person who lives in New York City went into their own public school their local public school and tr- the whole issue of choice Laney is that is there's really no choice there's not, it's not it, it, I don't really believe in choice it's not a choice. Um, you know, it's um, it's unfortunate. Our kids should go to the local public school, in elementary school especially, and be able to work in that system, you know, and and create, um, if they like the environment in some of these public schools, and work to create it within a public school. There's nothing wrong with our public school system except for the lack of uh, funding and, um, and parental involvement in some cases uh, where, where it would have been otherwise. Charter schools can require parental involvement. We can't. The public school system can't.
0: Um, what some people say about charter schools is that you're not really choosing the charter. The charter is choosing you. <laughs> because what, what happens at a lot of these schools is that, that they may have a lottery for um, acceptance. Um, many of the schools actually push out kids who aren't making the grade, either in terms of test scores or in terms of discipline. And so you see very high attrition rates from a lot of these schools, which means that whatever the test scores they're producing, they're really not comparable to the achievement levels at regular public schools. Uh, Because of term limits, this is your last. Mm -hmm. Lainey, just on that
1: subject, too, if I can say, many of them keep their students until October 31st, when uh, the registers are reported. And then November 1st, in the public schools, we'd always say, oh, where did this kid come from? Well, he came from the local charter school because now it's okay to throw them out, you know, so I I couldn't agree with you more on that as
0: well. So this, you know, unfortunately, this is your last term in the council because of term limits. Um, I think we're a lot of us are going to be really, really sad to see you go. Um, Your accumulated wisdom, both as a teacher, but now, you know, as a council member as well, we're going to lose out on that. Number one, do you agree with term limits? I mean, do you regret that that we do have term limits and number, and we're losing a lot of council members with you at the same time, something like two thirds or something of all council members are going to have to go. But secondly, um, what are your plans for the future?
1: (laughs) Uh, Good question. I I don't really know what my plans are for the future and thank you for your very kind words as well. Um, Yeah, it's a hard issue for me. You know, when I, um, uh, was uh, a teacher and, and, and an LGBT activist, um, we had a very difficult time getting elected officials to pay attention to us. But when term limits kicked in, all of a sudden all of these candidates started to come around and pay attention to us. So I initially opposed term limits and then I saw the attention we were getting and then I kind of supported it. So I really have mixed feelings about it. And then I guess it depends on whether you have a good elected official or a bad elected official, right? Um, that's gonna shape your opinion on it. Probably in the in the long run, term limits is 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 the best thing. I think that actually the term for council members, though, should be three terms, because I think you spend the first term learning the ropes, you know, to, to so to speak. Um, and then uh, you know, you're more effective in your second and third term in terms of getting what it is that you want. Um but yeah, but for the mayoral uh, level, at the executive level, two terms, I think is enough. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think sometimes maybe I'll go to CUNY and teach a course. Uh, I would love to do something in LGBT history, LGBT studies, um, but probably something in education uh, because education has always been my passion. And like I said at the beginning of the show, that's um, what got me involved in politics. So um, I'm probably going to go back to my roots. You know, uh, My mom was a teacher. Um, and, um, and I just had that passion, uh, for being a teacher or being an educator.
0: Well, I hope you stay involved in education in some way and at the advocacy level as well as, as, as a teacher, your, your participation and your involvement is really critical, no matter what happens with this budget, no matter who our next mayor is, you know, we need your voice desperately, I think. Thank you so much for being with me today at Talk Out of School. Uh, This is Laini Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Our guest has been Councilmember Danny Drum, chair of the Finance Committee. Our show is available as a podcast. If you missed the live version, if you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. You can also log in to buddy.wbai.org or give to wbai.org. We really need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run ads. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening.
1: Up to the corner and round the bend Ride to the juke, joint you, go in Drop the coin right into the slot you got to hear something that's really hot With the one you love, you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to toe You gotta hear something that's really hot.